Open up God's Word, and if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 9 with me this morning. I have a confession to make, and that is that I am not going to get through all 12 of these verses with you this morning, but we're going to start, and uh, I'm going to watch the clock, I promise, because I know uh, dinner is cooking downstairs. And uh, what we're going to do is we'll start this, and then we'll end it next week for Communion Sunday when we get into the first Sunday of June, Lord willing. If you have a bulletin, you'll notice on the back there's the title of my sermon and some lines that you can take notes if you do that. And so basically this morning I want us to think about the idea of blind eyes, what it means to be physically blind, to not be able to see versus a blind heart, a blind heart. And we're looking at John's gospel in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read them in a little bit. And I I prep you, I'm going to have a bit of a prolonged introduction because I want us to think about something, I want to recap something, and then I want to draw us into the passage and then give you something to go home and think about this morning. But if I say the word to you, and it's interesting how the whole shape of the service is taken, if I say the word suffering, what it means to suffer, are you suffering? Do you know someone who's suffering? When I say that word and you think of it, it's as inevitable that everybody in here right now as you look at me and I look at you has, is, or will endure suffering. The cliche of our culture is suffering is like death and taxes. Every one of us is going to through it. We felt the sting of suffering. And suffering can be as simple as a sleepless night or an achy body or as major as an unexpected diagnosis or that unexpected call to say there's been a car accident. Added to that, suffering also comes in many forms. It's not just physical. There's mental suffering. There's emotional suffering. And then there's physical suffering. And in fact, you won't suffer without some form of all three likely being at play in your life. With physical suffering will come mental and emotional suffering. If you have emotional suffering, often that will exhibit itself in physical suffering. And even more amazing or tragic is not only that we will suffer, but we've all been asked to help someone else through suffering. We hear about it. You can't turn on your computer or listen to a radio or watch television and not hear about suffering in the world. We see it. Whether it's that simple commercial for Compassion Canada or World Vision where we see that little child with the distended stomach where you can see their ribs or you hear of the horrific terrorist bombing attack where you see mothers clutching children or people looking for people or tornadoes that rip through capitals or weather or whatever it might be. We see it and we hear it and we know it exists. And without a doubt, as a 47-year-old before you, I have wrestled with the two biggest questions of life when it comes to suffering. I have dealt with it now in 20 plus years as a pastor. Without a doubt, I get asked more about these two things when it comes to suffering. And that is this, why is there suffering and what can be done about it? That is the two questions I face, probably more than any two questions I face as a pastor. Why is there suffering? And what can we do about it? Now, the tragedy is that the world sees suffering or tries to put suffering in compartments, and we have certain words. For many of the world, they see suffering as karma. 
So karma. So if you did something good, then something good should happen. If you've done something bad, then expect something bad to happen. That is one explanation for suffering in the world. The other one is as base as revenge. If something is bad happening to you and you are suffering, maybe it is finally someone is getting even with you for something you've done to them. Or there's the other one, which is justice. Sweet justice. Finally, you're getting what you deserve. But the problem with that is we don't have a category when we see someone suffering and we view them as innocent. See, we have categories for karma, and we have categories for revenge, and we have categories for justice. Our struggle of why is there suffering or what can be done about it, you only have to go over to the Health Science Center, walk through the Janeway, and see children that are suffering, and no one ever thinks they're getting what they deserve. To look into those innocent faces, if you've walked in through a palliative care unit, and like as I said, if you watch the news lately, like the tornado that ripped through uh, that state capital of Mississippi or Missouri, and you just see people that have lost their homes and people that have lost all their belongings, and you see them with their dusty faces and the tear tracks down their cheeks as they cry and they wonder why. And your heart breaks and you feel this, why is there this suffering? What can I do about it? And that's where the struggle really rages. And I submit that that's what we're going to find as we begin to study John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. See, today I promise you we're going to begin a journey together. And I have to give you up front, we're going to spend most of the summer while I preach to you and into the fall, walking through John chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And basically you're going to see, beginning with the man born blind and ending with Lazarus who dies from an illness, how does God, through Jesus, deal with the why and the what of suffering? And so Calvary Baptist, here we are, and for our visitors, I've been preaching now for over a year through the gospel of John. This is sermon number 48, if you're keeping track, and I'm at John chapter 9. I've been making great headway, and I love the gospel of John. I can't lie to you about it. I love it. I think everybody in here should read it and read it regularly, and if you want me to quantify that, I think you should read all 21 chapters at least once a month. Spend time reading the gospel of John. It's the gospel that sticks out from Matthew and Mark and Luke. And that's because of its layout and its content. You'll notice I've titled my series, Conversations with Christ. Because in the Gospel of John, more than any of the other Gospels, you get a bird's eye view. You get to be the fly on the wall as Jesus has conversations with individuals or groups of people. And most of them are nameless. In John chapter 4, there was the woman at the well. In John chapter 3, there was that rich nobleman who wanted his son to be healed. We never know, his, know who he is. We just know he's a nobleman. The man that was in chapter 5 who was paralyzed for 38 years. In our passage today, we hear about a man born blind. But John also introduces us to some people by name. In John chapter 3, you'll read about that Pharisee who came under the cover of darkness, Nicodemus, as he talks to Jesus. In John chapter 11, you'll be introduced to two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their very different take on why their brother died. John also focuses, though, on how the world reacts to Jesus. And this is where I want you all to pay attention 
Because not only does he tell us about how the world reacts to Jesus, but he breaks the world down into two parts. You see, the world will always react to the words of Jesus and to the works of Jesus. But John says, some are confused and curious about Jesus, but most have a settled rejection of Jesus. Usually in the form of religion. John also includes episodes and events that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include in their Gospels. As I said before, the woman at the well, you only read about her in the Gospel of John. Again, the man born blind that we're going to look at today is only in the Gospel of John. And why Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, you read more about what was actually said at the Last Supper than any of the other Gospels. And then John chapter 17, which by the way is the true Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, what we call our Father who art in heaven, that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the model prayer. If you want to really read the Lord's Prayer, read John chapter 17. And these are the things that stick out about this particular passage and this particular gospel. But John divides his gospel in a very deliberate way. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, you have the introduction to the gospel of John. In John chapter 21, you have the conclusion of the gospel. And so from John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of John chapter 20, he crafts his account of Jesus using two sets of seven. Seven great miracles and seven great statements of Jesus. The seven miracles culminate actually with an eighth one, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just say for the record one more time, every one of you in here from the youngest of you to the oldest has to make a decision as to what you're going to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you believe that the resurrection took place, then by virtue of that, you must believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and what he says is trustworthy and you must listen to him and obey him. Your only other option is that the resurrection didn't take place, of which you can be, as C.S. Lewis said, call Jesus a madman or a liar, but those are your only two conclusions or he's telling the truth. But... John highlights these seven great miracles. Remember the first one in John 2 was changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana where he shows us that he is the true master of the feast and the ceremony. Next in John chapter 4, we have the healing of the royal official's son. After that in John chapter 5, we have the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. He had been paralyzed for 35 years and Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. Next, the only miracle recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000, which was likely somewhere between 10 and as maybe as many as 20,000 because we, we know that it was only 5,000 men. There were women and children besides that. Next, in John chapter 6, 16, Jesus walks on water and shows us how he has authority over nature. And then in our passage for today, John chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind, which is one of the most unique miracles, and I'll get to that in a minute. Finally, in John chapter 11, you've got raising Lazarus from the dead, and that is one also one of the most amazing miracles. The reason being, not because people haven't been raised from the dead before, but it's the one and only time someone was dead in a grave for four days, and Jesus raises him from the dead. 
Of course, John also, with these five miracles, parallels them with five great statements. They're called the I am statements of the Gospel of John, two of which we've already dealt with so far. You'll notice most of the book of John, the first nine chapters, he front loads the miracles. Then in the next few chapters, he's going to back load the I am statements. Thus far in John chapter 6, Jesus told the Jews, I am the bread of life, interestingly, shortly after he had fed thousands. Next, in John chapter 8, where we were last, Jesus declared in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which I'll explain in a minute, he said, I am the light of the world. And then next, in John chapter 10, he'll look at a group of people and he'll say, I am the door. Very quickly followed up with, I am the good shepherd. And then one of the most powerful I am statements is found in John chapter 11 when Martha is doubting Jesus and asking him, where were you when my brother was sick? And he looks at Martha and with this combination that only Jesus can have, it's tender authority, he would say, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The next I am is one that most of you in this room, as I look around, I think most of you will know this one. It's in John chapter 14, verse 6. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, in John 15, I actually think one that's well known but most misunderstood, and I can't wait to preach this chapter to you, is John chapter 15, when he says, I am the vine. And all of this John does to build throughout his gospel from John 1.19 all the way to John 20 because he wants you to arrive at his purpose. In other words, John says, by the time you've read my account of Jesus, here is what I want you to conclude. In John chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. I have picked out seven. But these I have picked out are from a smorgasbord, a buffet of miracles that Jesus has done. But I picked these out, and here's why I have picked them out for you. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's your conclusion. I want you to realize that every time I preach to you a passage of John, John has one thing in mind, that every one of you in here would come to this conclusion. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you would say, yes, that's the conclusion I come to, then i got to tell you, that means something. It should affect you. It shouldn't be just a head knowledge. That's the problem of the 21st century church in Canada and the United States is we already give mental assent to a bunch of facts. But listen, if Jesus is the Christ, that means the Messiah, the sent one, the Savior of the world, and he is the Son of God sent from the Father, the second person of the Trinity, to be our Savior, to heal all our diseases, then that should affect the way you and I see life. It should affect, are you ready for this? Your worldview. If this is true, it affects the way you see money and sexuality, men and women, marriage. It's the way you see jobs, family. It's the way you see life and death. It's the way you see the value of life and the dignity of death. If Jesus is the Christ, because here is the conclusion. If this is the arriving conclusion, the result of the conclusion, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And you know what? I love every one of you. I really do. Some of you I love more than others because I've known you more. But I want you to understand, I think a lot of people don't really get what it means to have life in Jesus' name. 
See, for some of you, you think it means you're just going to go skip to Malou, my darling, and sing Disney's It's a Small World After All as if nothing's wrong. Some of you think it's going to be like, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? And you just walk around with kind of this platypus Eeyore face. You know, uh, Winnie the Pooh got it right because some Christians think they need to be Tigger and just bounce around on their tail all the time. But too many Christians act like Eeyore. Oh, I love Jesus. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. If you believe in Christ, you have life in his name. It means you face hard times. In fact, let me tell you, Christian, if you really want to know Jesus, let me give you a guaranteed axiom. You are going to suffer. You are going to suffer. Life is not going to go your way. But you can still have life in his name. You can make sense of your suffering. You can have peace in your suffering. You can have hope in your suffering. And you realize suffering doesn't win. Suffering has a shelf life. There's an expiry date on suffering. And one day it ends. The problem is, too many of us try to act like that now instead of bearing up under the gospel, which is what we're called to do. And so I wanted to remind us of this this morning again. I don't want us to miss what John's purpose and his point is. And at the end of this, in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you all to consider, have you arrived at a decision point that is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? And are you living out that reality, if you agree with it, that you now have life in his name? And so very deliberately, not by accident, John has picked out this sixth sign, this sixth miracle, and he's deliberately chosen it for you and I to read about. And he wants you and I to not only read about it, but learn, and then we're supposed to react to it. We're supposed to have a reaction to this, and it's supposed to apply to our lives in the here and now. Now, I don't know about if you're like me, but I love to find things in the Bible. I love to see how the Bible is actually a tapestry. It's woven all together. It's not just this bunch of disjointed stories. John is very deliberately in this. And if you notice the, the similarities between miracle number three and miracle number six. You see, in miracle number three, we have all of the, both miracle number three, which is the healing of the paralyzed man, back in John chapter five, and here, the healing of the blind man, both take place in Jerusalem. Both take place outside of Jerusalem. Both are involved with pools. You've got the pool of Bethesda, and you've got the pool of Siloam. One was very superstitious. The other one was very religious. You have healings that both took place on the Sabbath, Both the healings provoked a nasty reaction from religion. I would submit that in chapter 9, it's much more comical. I love to laugh. I really do. I'm the guy that watches the YouTube videos of Fail Army. I love to see people trip and fall. I I love to watch the the blooper reel of of, uh, Family Feud and and the dumb answers that people say and and things like that. Like the other night I was watching it and we asked 100 people what something comes after pork. And so pork loin and pork belly. And he asked this one guy and he says, you pine. (laughs) Yeah, so you'll, you'll get it now. Pork, you pine. 
All right, that was his answer. And he legitimately thought that was going to be up there. And I, I just, for some reason, I have a weird sense of humor. I thought that was hilarious. Tell me 100 people, what follows the word pork? You pine. All right, that, that's me. I, I, I love John chapter 9 because it is a filled with irony and, and sarcasm. But you need to consider, why did Paul, John pick this particular miracle to use? Well, I want you to understand that blindness in the Bible and someone who can heal blindness was known to be of a messianic sending. If the Messiah was someone who was going to be able to heal blindness. An acti- it was an activity. And second, folks have been healed of blindness before, but this is the one and only time in all of recorded history of the Bible that we know someone is healed being born blind. They were congenitively blind. Now just think about that. I began asking you about suffering. How does suffering affect you? But consider with me even more. How does suffering make you feel? You yourself. If you've had a chronic illness. If you've had a bad back. I I know when I talk to people that have had back issues. Because it's one of those things that nobody can see. And all they're left with is you to express to them the pain you feel. And it's so hard for other people. But yet you yourself know how painful long-standing back injuries can be. But it's not like if you've got a massive incision. It's not like if something's broken and you've got a cast. All you can say is, I've got back pain. Well, can you imagine what it would be like to be born blind? I don't know if you've ever met anyone born blind. I have. It's actually a very difficult conversation to have with someone who's been born blind because you can't even begin to describe to them things. When you say to them, oh, the sky is so bright and yellow today, they've never seen yellow. When you say how blue the water is and how the sky shimmers off that, they don't know what you're talking about. All they've ever known is blackness. Oh, their other senses can tell them about the breeze of a wind or the beautiful sound of music or the wonderful touch and feel that they can have, but they don't know the description that you can give them if you're the seeing. So can you imagine what this person was feeling? What emotions does it provoke in you when you think about what you have suffered or what other people are suffering? And so is it any wonder when we see all of the suffering in the world, all of the things that you and I hear about and have experienced and we know about, is it any wonder that we long for miracles? Can I get a witness? Would you not long to be able to walk into the hospital and go, be healed? Would you not long to do that? I will tell you as a pastor, especially when I go through these halls and I see people suffering and hurting and you just want to, I'm like, Lord, what I wouldn't give to be able to just heal everybody here. But have you ever considered how much we long for miracles in our culture? Now, for some of you, here's a test. How many of you will admit you're 40 and above? Put your hand up. All right. So a little less than half of you, okay. Some of you may remember this. If your parents are conservative, made you had, had you watch it. But there was a show back in the, in the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, by a guy named Michael Landon. And I'm not talking about Little House on the Prairie. He made famous another series called Touched by an Angel. How many of you remember that? Touched by an Angel, right? And that was like the feel-good TV show of the day. Because always somebody got healed. Somebody was going to get touched by an angel. And somebody was going to get healed. And did you notice then, now countless shows then from that, they started to deal with the unexplained. 
Someone who fell from the 40th floor of a building but walked away. Or someone's parachute didn't open. And so there was all these shows about the unexplained. And then came the extreme shows. You remember it started with extreme makeover. And there was sad music as you were introduced to someone that had a a bad life and they suffered from bad facial defects or whatever. And they just brought them to every plastic surgery, surgeon and dentist in the world. And they basically remade them. They were like bionic people. And then I think that fell out of vogue because then it became politically incorrect. So we moved from extreme makeover to extreme makeover home edition. And that one tugged at our hearts. Because we had the soft, sad music as we learned about that family that took in all the orphans or those people that adopted or that flood that washed away that home. And then all of a sudden, this group came in and they built mansions for everybody. And and then it was, move that bus, move that bus, right? And then they paid all their debt and and CSV or that, that, that pharmaceutical company would give everybody thousands of dollars and all of these types of things. And we were happy because miracles happened. And then we moved into the movies like The Matrix. And then Marvel didn't, wasn't just a comic. Now it's a movie franchise and DC. And we love, don't we, these movies and these shows that tell us how people can heal or turn back time or overcome death or stop evil, how ju- stand for justice, right or wrong, ease the pain, give us hope. <laughs> Why do you think we love the idea of the X-Men and mutants? Who can control nature. And yet, if I can be, sorry Debbie, Debbie Downer. How often do you see and have you noticed the ideal is there, the longing is there, but the reality is always the same. For every movie or TV show, we find out it's, we never get that fairy tale ending like we really want. Because now someone has to die. Or there's always a new villain. There's always another problem or issue. In fact, friends, have you realized how much Hollywood actually tries to emulate the Bible all the while denying Jesus? I think Hollywood in the day has actually should pay more for copyright infringement than anybody. I think they rob and pillage from the Bible all the time and then put their own worldly spin on it at the end and wonder why none of us can find satisfaction. Heroes and heroines. Those who sacrifice or lay down their lives for the sake of others. But the fight goes on. Oh, there's hope for a better day. And you kind of know yet, in the end, it's the same old, same old. We long for the ability to ease suffering and, and to eliminate suffering. Just this past Friday, I was with a dear friend. He's becoming very close to me and I had lunch with him. And as we were sitting down about to begin our lunch, we'd said our blessing and he was about to eat, and I asked him, I said, how are you doing, my buddy? And with that, he laid his lunch down, and he, he put his hand in his head, or his hands on his head, and he rubbed his face, and he said, Pastor, to be honest with you right now, I can't wait to get before God and ask him one day, why is there all this suffering? He proceeded to tell me how he had just found out that his daughter had been told that she had four tumors in her neck, two on either side of her thyroid. And now they're waiting on the results and the answers for treatment. And he couldn't understand it. 
And let me tell you, this is a man of means. This is not a, a poor man. This is a man of some, some stature. He's got connections. He's got a certain amount of money. He has the ability to probably get the best treatments that the world has to offer, even pay for it if he needs to. And yet, for all of his ability, for all of the medical advances and the medical abilities, he is left to depend, to wait, and to pray, and to long, basically to long for a miracle. Can I ask you, have you been there? Longing for a miracle? Heal me, Lord. Heal my marriage. Heal my family. Help my son or my daughter. Pay the bill. Take care of that relationship. And it can be big or small. I remember in the early years of my marriage, there was a point where the iron in our home broke. And it was an $80 bill, and I thought it was going to cripple us. And I remember crying, asking the Lord, really, am I going to be taken out by an iron? And we suffered. And so we love the ideas of a miracle. Because that very day when I prayed that, I went to the post office. And wouldn't you know it, I'd forgotten all about my GSD credit. And my GST credit was there, it was for $86. And the iron cost us $84.20 something at Walmart. You don't think I didn't testify that that was a miracle? I did. I thought, man, I've just received a miracle. (laughs) You see, God is not only sovereign, but he's able. And I want you to realize this. And now here's a couple of verses to make you uncomfortable. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, 39, God says to the nation of Israel, See now that I, God says, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I healed, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Psalmist said in Psalm 115.3, he declares, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was studying for this, I read this verse, and this really made me uneasy. We don't like to think of God this way. Well, what if I told you that Deuteronomy chapter 32 is actually taken from the song of praise of Moses after God has delivered the nation? He tells the nation of Israel, Moses does, how God will deal with suffering, how God will right all wrongs, how God will heal and fix and restore. And friends, only God and only the Bible, God's word to us as humans, tells us that Jesus, through his gospel, that there will be a true happy ending. Really, the old southern gospel song is right. I read the back of the book and we win. That's the way it should go. And so, I want us to come back to miracles, suffering. And again, I I apologize, God. I wanted to give you all this because it's so easy to just go, and as he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I want you to realize, just in those few words, there's a whole treatise on suffering. That's what this is. These disciples are confused about why is evil in the world. And that's why I want. And they're looking for a miracle. Just like this man is looking for a miracle. The world is looking for miracles. You and I are looking for miracles. And we got to understand it. So let me say again. Have you thought lately about miracles? 
what we call miracles. Chuck Swindoll on VOAR, I know he preached, I know Scott listens to him all the time. He did one thing at Christmas, and we're pretty flippant with this miracle thing, right? Remember I said our, my iron broke and then my GST check showed up, and so I call that a miracle. I've, I've heard people, right, at Christmas, they're circling the mall parking lot at the Avalon Mall or at Costco, and they get a parking spot that's like right next to the door, and someone goes, it's a Christmas miracle. Really? No, I just call that good timing. Like, don't sell God that short, right? Okay? Have you really thought about how the Bible defines miracles? Miracles. Because believe it or not, and maybe to your chagrin, miracles are actually quite rare in the Bible. And they seem to be regulated to specific time frames. So think about it. At least all the miracles you know about outside of the four Gospels. Think about all the miracles of the Bible, not including what you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then compare them to the amount of human history that you're talking about. It might shock you. We've got examples of God healing, for instance, infertility in Genesis. Remember uh, Sarah who, who conceived in her old age? And then there was Leah and Rachel. Then in, second, in 1 Samuel, you've got Hannah who was healed of her infertility. God healed the nation of Israel from poisonous snakes, remember, in John chapter 21, and he made a brazen image of, of a snake on a cross, and he lifted him up, and you had to look at this. By the way, that's why uh, in medical profession today, you still have this snake wrapped around a cross. By the way, that goes all the way back to that event. Again, the world thinks that they're getting away from God, and they've got these symbols and images they don't even realize that represent him. You remember how Job was healed of his physical attack from Satan in Job chapter 42? God healed Naaman of leprosy in 2 Kings 5. He healed the king Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. In all of the Old Testament, spanning some 4,000 years of history at least, we only have three people raised from the dead. You know who they are? We have the widow's son at Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. You've got the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. And then finally, one that you probably can't even remember. It's about this guy who was thrown in Elisha's grave in 2 Kings chapter 13. That makes for great bedtime reading. All right? Fella got flicked into the grave, and then the guy was so powerful of the Lord, it caused the other guy to come back to life. And I did some research on this, and if you include creation as a miracle, are you ready for this? You only have about 130 miracles in the entire Bible. 130. Not including the Gospels. If you do that right, you got about one miracle for every 46 years. One miracle every 46 years. When you put it in that perspective, all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh. Because we talk about miracles all the time as if they happen all the time. We, we talk about miracles as if you can just call them up anytime you want. But that's not how the Bible presents it. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that some were healed as Peter's shadow was cast upon them. And in Acts 19, we're told that some who touched Paul's handkerchief and apron were healed. But by far, the greatest concentration of miracles in the greatest quantity has been and always been when Jesus walked the earth. One commentator said this, Jesus practically banished disease from Palestine. So he started his ministry, and then for three years, remember this in in Matthew chapter 9, listen to this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Just think about that. And have you ever thought about these types of things? Miracles? 
He healed everything. Issues of blood, blindness, deafness, mute, dead, fevers. And they all have something in common. When Jesus healed, it was always with a word or a touch. He either said, be healed, or he touched you and you were healed. It was always instantly. It wasn't a time-release healing. It wasn't, I'm going to heal you now and declare this, and you'll get a little bit better over time. See, that sounds a lot like a doctor to me prescribing a medication. Jesus said, if you were healed, you were healed. When Jesus did it, it was always completely. If you had leprosy, he healed you. You didn't have it. If you were lame, you didn't get progressively better. Now you could walk. In fact, you often leaped. It was always anyone and everyone. Men, women, children, Jews, Gentiles, in, out. It didn't matter. It was always visible issues. Sorry for those of you that have suffered back pains. Healing in Jesus' day weren't, I suffer from migraines. Oh, now I'm healed. No, it was things that you couldn't deny. You couldn't walk. You couldn't see. You couldn't hear. You were filled with sores. Whatever it was, you were controlled by dynamic forces. And it was always over anything. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if it was demons or death. It didn't matter the predicament. It couldn't, wouldn't stop Jesus. Demons feared him. Nature hushed for him. Graves spit out the dead because of him. That's my king. Amen? All right. Wake up. All right. That's who we are serving. Amen? All right. Just wanting to check. And so as I'm just getting excited, I got to quit. So, yeah, Steve bet me that I wouldn't even get through the introduction, and he was right. (laughs) But I wanted to lay this foundation. I wanted to lay this foundation for you. And here's what I want to ask you by application. I said, that's my king. Listen, are you here this morning and you're suffering? Or you know somebody who's suffering? Maybe at the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. And you're tempted to think, does Jesus care? Does he care? I want you to notice that in this passage of John chapter 9, the miracle is really the miracle of Jesus' divine, sovereign power. Really, this entire passage is about amazing grace. Amazing grace. When I say to you the words amazing grace, what do you think about Yell it out to me. Huh? The song, right? You, sing about, you think about John Newton, that slave trader that was on a boat that was going to sink and he comes to Jesus Christ. But have you ever known what he said? When I say amazing grace, John Newton once wrote this, I am not what I ought to be and I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This was not a guy who, when he came to Jesus, stopped suffering. This was a guy, when he found Jesus, understood suffering. And let me get you the last part. He says, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. (laughs) Are you suffering this morning? I want you to know there's no greater suffering than a blind heart. Blind eyes are not the tragedy of this passage. It's a blind heart. 
You're going to discover next week that this man who was blind actually will come to see better than all of the religion of Israel. Listen to these words again. Is it any wonder that a man who said this would say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind? Oh, but now I see. He had perspective. You see, let me tell you about the greatest miracle that can happen right here, right now. It's not that God will take away all your physical pain or give you money to pay all your unexpected bills. It's not that God will heal every relationship on earth with you, but he will do the greatest miracle, the most important miracle, and that is he'll make you alive in him, forgive you of your sin, make you and give you a heavenly father and be with you every day of your life and bring you into the kingdom as his child. Here's the thing, Christians, because I think I'm looking at mostly Christians. Do you live like that's true? Do you know how easy it is? You know what my greatest burden is as your pastor? How easy it is for me to stand up here. How easy it is for me to come to this church and sing wonderful songs. Man, the, song, the music was great. I could hear the, the, all the instruments. I could hear the voices. It was perfect. The drums, Scotty, were brilliant. Oh, man, it was brilliant. The bass, Dave, you just walked up and down the neck of the bass. It was great. I love to get up here and preach. I love everything about this, and yet I'll go get in my car, and the first person that pulls in front of me and doesn't go fast enough, I'll call the damnation of God down upon them. And I instantly lapse back into a way of living that contradicts everything we're doing right here. Do you know when we start to get this? Is when you and I start to live the rest of today and this coming week the way we've lived right here. When the joy of the Lord, when he's a good, good father, tomorrow when your boss is in a bad mood and just lays a whole week's work on you tomorrow morning. Is he a good, good father when you get up and the kids just go psycho from the moment you get up tomorrow? Is he a good, good father when the car has a flat tire or when your kid wrecks the car? Or when the house starts to leak or the deal falls through? Is he a good, good father when your marriage isn't easy, when in-law, outlaw stuff is happening? Is he a good, good father when you don't feel like you got the promotion you deserved or everything isn't going just your way? See, do you have blind eyes or a blind heart? Do you get the amazing grace of God? And if God gives us another seven days, next week, I'm going to preach an amazing sermon from John chapter 9. <laughs> and we're going to look at what this passage means about all everything I was trying to tell you today about suffering and miracles and putting it all in perspective. Because here's the danger, Christians. If you look at the first verse, Jesus saw a man born blind, verse 2, and the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Christians, here's my thing. Jesus sees a man born blind. The disciples see a theological discussion. They don't see a human being. They see a theological discussion. 
If you and I understand suffering, if you and I get amazing grace, why are we arguing over theology when people are suffering all around us? Now, it doesn't mean that I don't think we need to stand for theology. Every one of you who knows me know I live for theology. But I've come back to my home province, and I'm only now starting to realize just how broken this city is. But to really get, I've got to admit how broken I am and how terribly I, we, they need Jesus too. So don't just sing Amazing Grace. Know it. And then go live it and offer it to those around you. Let's pray. Father God, if ever I have wanted to pray that these people have heard a better sermon than I have preached, it's today. If ever I have felt the inadequacy of my own humanity, it is today. But Lord, yet I have to tell you, I've never felt a greater freedom of your spirit to just be me and to preach what you've laid on my heart than I have in a long time. To challenge myself and my friends and my family, my brothers and my sisters, that we have answers. And we need to not only just be proud and cocky that we've had answers, we need to be humble and urgent and passionate and compassionate because we have answers. I pray that the effects of this, Lord, isn't it ironic that we're going to have a soup and sandwich time for an opportunity for us to catch a burden for a family, a man and his wife and his two daughters who've been literally tossed from their country under fear of death, are hiding in another country, waiting and dependent on another country to give them the money to fly to a place they've never been, to meet a group of people they have never met, and trust us that we'll take care of them. And yet what an opportunity to actually be like Christ. Lord, we voted to build a building, and the truth of the matter is it's a scary prospect to build a building and have debt and to do all these things. But Lord, what is that to you? But Lord, may we not rest on the laurels of buildings and programs, but Father, how we are effectively living out the gospel to everybody that sees us. And may it start here. May we start to take the time to get to know each other and love each other and talk to each other and not ask each other superficial things. Lord, may we know grace so that we can be dispensers of it. And may we sing and go into this time of fellowship together for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.